Today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. It's in Matthew where we find the, the, the culmination of what's been called the Sermon on the Mount, all within one area, chapters 5, 6, and 7, that whole message. In, in Mark's account, though, we actually find these sayings kind of spread out over a, a, a various times, or not all together. And some say, well, that's a real conflict. When did Jesus say that? Did he say that up on the mountain? Or did he say that while he was in the village talking to people? Well, I don't see that as a conflict at all. Because the words that he said on the mountain were important words. They were important words of life and truth. As Pastor David will show you, in the Gospel of Matthew, you'll read the famed Sermon on the Mount. This was a sermon preached by Jesus to his disciples hours before his crucifixion. The sermon was meant to encourage the disciples as Jesus knew that the time after his death would be difficult for them. Pastor David will also share with you some common conflicts that some have with this account. Did Jesus really give this sermon on the mountain? As you'll see, Jesus' sermon was powerful, and it doesn't matter where it was shared. Now here's Pastor David as he continues his message, a synopsis of the Gospels. Verse 31, and so he came and took her by the hand, lifted her up, and immediately her fever left her, and she served them. And then verse 42, as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. That's a lot of immediately. Uh, There's just a lot. But it's not only that. Another peculiarity about Mark in general is the use of that conjunction word and, and. Uh, as, As a matter of fact, it's, it is the most common word in his entire gospel account. He uses the word and more than any other word, even more than immediately. Uh, and so this, 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 to me, it just adds to the immediacy of, of Mark's account, uh, continually moving from one event to another. Just to show you what it is, go back, you're still in chapter one of Mark. Look up in verse 20. Chapter 1 of Mark, verse 20. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with hired servants, and went after him. I mean, in the same sentence there, you got three of them. But that's not so bad. Look down at verse 31. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. This guy's like, bam, 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 bam. It's like all there. That's one of the reasons why Mark is actually fairly easy to read because it just moves right along. Gives the story of Jesus, gives the, the, the accounts of many miracles and many healings, many actions of Jesus, and it just moves right along. Another interesting thing about Mark, and one of the reasons why they feel also that it was one of the first written, is nearly a, a third of Mark's gospel 
is used in Matthew and Luke's account. And in some cases, it's almost verbatim, word for word there. And so they, they, they suppose that Matthew and Luke, when they were writing, very possibly had access to Mark's text as they were writing. That does not lessen the impact of, again, the Holy Spirit's leading, uh, again, uh, either as a pastor or a Bible study leader, we glean not only from the word of God, but we'll glean from other, uh, other pastors, other teachers, other commentaries. So not lessening the work of the Holy Spirit of God, but more than anything, it just brings it all together. Mark's account doesn't include a, a, a nativity at all. Uh, he just begins right there with the uh, baptism of John there in the very first chapter of the opening passages of Mark 1. And although the gospel record of Mark is applicable to, to, to all people, many believe that Mark was primarily written to believers that were in the area of Rome just simply due to its style and to its content. Uh, I believe they, again, at that story style, that, that, that compressed content, that fast pace, that fast moving. It's kind of like today, there are a lot of believers that say, or new believers and some non-believers that really have a difficulty, they say, reading the Bible. And so we'll give them like a New Living Translation or the... God forbid the message, you know. Some people really get, uh, you know. I, but you know what? If it gets them started reading the word of God, I'm fine with that. As they grow, they can grow deeper in it. And so I, I, I look at Mark and say, you know, here, here's a letter of people that are on the go, maybe brand new in the Lord. And Mark says, man, here it is. Kind of like the Reader's Digest version of the life of Christ. You look at, you know, uh, again, there, there's, there's action there's a lot moving on, and there's very little doctrine in the book of Mark that a new believer or a non-believer would have to wrestle with. It's full of action, full of miracles, not a whole lot of teachings, and so again, it becomes that way. Let's move on to the gospel according to Matthew. Now, one of the things, hopefully, you'll, you'll catch on, or perhaps you've caught on earlier, as is just in my teaching I don't say it's Matthew's gospel or it's Luke's gospel. No, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel according to Matthew or according to Luke or Mark or John. And so you just want to have that in your brain as you go through this. The gospel according to Matthew, in in, in comparison to, to Mark, it's actually one of the longer, uh, it's one of the two longest, uh, Luke being the longest, uh, of the gospel records. And in Matthew, it's actually filled with the greatest amount of the teachings of Jesus. And therefore, there's a lot of areas of, of doctrine that as somebody is reading through Matthew that they, that they need to contend with, that they need to understand in order to get the complete message of the writer. And it would appear uh, through, its, through its length, through the weight of the doctrine that's there, through the apparent focus, it seems as though Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. Uh, I, 
they believe that that's one of the reasons why it's actually listed as first of the four Gospels, Matthew being first. Uh, again, no other primary reason on that. Matthew's focus, though, deliberate or not, was on those that had a really strong connection with the Old Testament. Uh, most likely a strong connection uh, with the Jewish people, uh, with the law of Moses, with the, with the prophets, a Jewish audience. Now, whether he did that purposefully or simply he is writing that uh, because that's who he was. That's up for a lot of speculation. And again, over all of this, understand, I understand, hopefully you do, it is the Holy Spirit writing through them but he is writing through the personality of these writers. We look, and more than any other gospel account, Matthew refers to Old Testament passages all throughout his gospel record. He, he, he goes all through the life of Jesus, and over and over, more than any other writer, Matthew connects Jesus as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, and thus he declares him as the Messiah of Israel. It's in Matthew that we find over and over these sayings, such as that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, or for thus it's written by the prophet, or what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, or for this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, or that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. More than 40 times in Matthew's gospel account, 28 chapters in in the account, but more than 40 times Matthew refers to Old Testament prophecies And again, he draws these conclusions from even the slightest events in Jesus' life that Jesus was the fulfillment of these prophecies. At the very beginning, Matthew lays out the uh, genealogical record uh, tying Jesus Christ as the son of David, as the son of Abraham. We find that right at the very beginning, chapter one, verse one. Matthew makes clear that Jesus is the promised son of David who could sit on David's throne, and he's also the fulfillment of the promises that God gave even to Abraham. So since Matthew was a, uh, was a tax collector prior to his conversion, and then he became a follower of Christ, and uh, later on then became an apostle, We find a lot of details within his writings, much more so than probably any of the others except maybe Luke. And that's one of the reasons for the the length of his account here. Someone has also said that Matthew has more references to money than any of the other gospel accounts. And they say, well, maybe that's because he was a tax collector. Money was kind of an important thing to him. But just, again, dealing with his personality and his background. It's in Matthew where we find the, the, the culmination of what's been called the Sermon on the Mount, all within one area, chapters 5, 6, and 7, that whole message. In, in Mark's account, though, we actually find these sayings kind of spread out over a, a, a various times, not all together. And some say, well, that's a real conflict 
When did Jesus say that? Did he say that up on the mountain? Or did he say that while he was in the village talking to people? Well, I don't see that as a conflict at all. Because the words that he said on the mountain were important words. They were important words of life and truth. Why wouldn't he then repeat those at another setting? I have no problem with the idea that what he said on the mountain, he also said other places as well. Again, speaking the sayings, dealing with the kingdom of heaven. Again, things that Jesus would share on multiple occasions with a variety of audiences. We find there's a unanimous consent in the, the early church fathers, guys such as Arrhenius, Origen, Eusebius, and Jerome, that it was Matthew that wrote that gospel, uh, even though his name's not in it. They also say that he wrote it originally in Hebrew. And again, that adds to the fact that he probably had a Jewish audience in mind but it was later translated into Greek. And again, it's not a major issue other than the fact that it just points out that Matthew had in mind speaking the truth of the gospel. This is your Messiah, Israel, and he's writing to those people, to the Jews, to the the people, again, of the law, people of the promise, people of the prophets. This is a gospel account written by a Jew in the Jewish language to encourage Jewish people that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the Jewish Messiah. As many of the Bible translators do today, it would seem as though Matthew was actually writing in the heart language of the people. If I'm going to write to a people of a particular language, you want to write to their heart language. That's why uh, uh, groups such as Wycliffe are there and multiple other Bible translator groups. They go into areas and they want to be able to translate the Bible into the heart language. And when Matthew writes in Hebrew, he's writing to the heart language of the people that, uh, again, he, he was a part of. Let's move into Luke. Luke does win the prize for being the longest of the four Gospels. I guess that's why it took us, uh, I think, three years to get through Luke uh, on a Sunday morning, Uh, other than the fact that maybe I'm a little slow, but uh, it is the longest of the four Gospels. Uh, As a matter of fact, it's the longest book in the entire New Testament. Uh, The only full Gentile to write a book in its entirety within the Bible is Luke, the one who is called the beloved physician. Someone has once said that uh, preachers usually see men at their best, police see men at their worst, and physicians see men as they really are. And so when we look at the book of Luke, Luke really brings out a detailed account of the humanity of Jesus who at the same time was a perfect human. He was sinless. But it speaks very much about that humanity, deity and humanity together. But Luke really brings out the humanity. And even though Matthew's account of the genealogy of Jesus brings him back to Abraham to tie him into the Jewish people, in Luke's genealogy, Luke brings him all the way back to Abraham to tie Jesus in with all of humanity. As a historian, Luke's gospel account uh, is written in a very high form of the Greek language. 
It's the only one that that has a very directed and a very precise audience. And we looked at this a little bit this last Sunday in the introduction to the book of Acts. Clearly, his gospel as well as the Acts, he wrote both of them. Both of them were written uh, uh, as an account to a man by the name of Theophilus. We find that at the beginning of Luke. We find that at the beginning of the book of Acts. And as would be expected of a man of, of Luke's abilities and his skill, he presents a much clearer chronology of the layout of the life and the ministry of Jesus than any of the other gospel writers. He was a man of detail. And we find that he inserts a whole lot more detail in the events that he covers than any of the other writers. Uh, He will speak of a man with leprosy in his right hand instead of a man with leprosy. He'll speak of the ages of individuals, much more so than the other gospel writers, much more detail. William Barclay brings out the fact that an example of Luke's care is the way in which he even dates the emergence or the beginning of John the Baptist. He does so by no fewer than six different components. Turn to Luke chapter 3 with me, if you would. Luke 3. He doesn't start out in verse 3, that John went into all the region around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance. He starts with verse 1. Now, I say that because in verse 1, he speaks of this thing. He starts out, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. That's the first point he brings out. The second, nailing the date and the time, uh, when, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. That's the second point. Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee. That's the third point. Oh, and by the way, his brother Philip being tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, that's the fourth point. And Lysanias was the tetrarch of Abilene, the fifth point. Oh, and by the way, there in Jerusalem, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, that's the sixth point, and that's when the word of God came to John. A lot of detail there that, again, none of the other gospel writers lay out. Here's a man, as Barclay says, he's trying to write with care, and again, he's going to be as accurate as possible for him to be as he writes out this account for his friend Theophilus. Well, because Luke has a very detailed story of the events in Mary's life, there in the earlier chapters, chapter one and two. Uh, he brings out the fact of her conversation with the angel Gabriel, brings out the audience of the shepherds directly after the birth, her journey with Joseph down to, to Bethlehem, all of these things, even the circumcision of Jesus, the early childhood events of Jesus in the temple at the age of 12, as well as other really close, really personal information in reference to Mary. It's assumed that Luke probably had direct contact with Mary, Mary probably being a major source of his information, gleaning as much of that early gospel information from Mary directly from her. Now, just as Matthew showed the heritage of Jesus from the time of Abraham, uh, Luke brought it all the way back to, to Adam. But now we move into the, the last gospel record, the gospel of John, 
Gospel of John, we see he brings the heritage of Jesus all the way back to the very beginning. Turn over to John with me, if you would. Very familiar passage. John chapter one. And in the time of Abraham? No, before that. Oh, in the time of Adam? No, before that. Well, how far back are you going? In the beginning. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And life was the light of men. And then we skip down to verse 14. And that word, that same word from verse 1, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. And John bore witness of him. Now, not the writer, but John the Baptist bore witness of him saying, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me for he was before me. And of his fullness, we have all received and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. And then John in his gospel record gets into the ministry of John the Baptist and then the baptism of Jesus. The other gospel writers, again, bringing in different accounts, but John here is written with the heart of a pastor a teacher, and an evangelist. Uh, His clear, his very stated purpose, none none of the other writers really give this, not even Luke as he's writing to Theophilus. It's only John that gives this direction. We looked at it earlier in John chapter 20, verse 30. John says, these things are written. I've written this gospel. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John, more so than any other writers, even in his epistles, he writes that, if I write these things to you who believe that you might know that you have eternal life. Again, John with that heart of a pastor, that heart of encouragement, that teacher, but that heart of evangelist. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what are called synoptic gospels. You can lay them pretty much alongside of each other, all three of them, and shifting some of the events and into different places, you can see pretty much they have pretty much all the same exact event. John is not a synoptic gospel. Uh, John is totally different than the others. He brings out events in Jesus' life that the others did not list, and he lists, uh, and, and he doesn't list some that the others do list. There's some that he coordinates with, but John is a separate gospel in and of itself. More so than any of the other gospel writers, John brings about the reality of the divinity of Jesus Christ.
Surprisingly and sadly, too many followers of Jesus are Bible illiterate. They know a few basic names or facts, but the abundance of truth and love inside this great text is getting lost. This is why Pastor David feels it's necessary to take some time to work through the Bible in this series, and we're so glad you've joined us here on The Open Word for it. Each time you tune in, Pastor David will be giving you an accurate and succinct dialogue of a book of Scripture, pointing out the key passages and truths that everyone needs to be aware of. If you missed any part of today's message or any part of this series, we encourage you to visit our website. You'll be able to listen again at theopenword.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, and please feel free to share these teachings with your friends and family. Everyone can benefit from this Through the Bible series. Are you in the Casa Grande area? If so, Pastor David has an invitation to extend to you. Every message you hear on The Open Word is one that I shared here at Calvary Chapel of Casa Grande, a great church where I enjoy my role as senior pastor. I'd love to see your face next time I get up to teach, and I'd really enjoy meeting you afterward please consider coming on out and joining us this weekend. You'll be able to find all the information you need at theopenword.com. Just click the Calvary Chapel link at the bottom of the page. See you there. Thanks, Pastor David. That's all for today. But join us next time to continue through the Bible here on The Open Word.